the headlines tonight. Reds get a wrist crack to Leningrad. Germans unite with William in bonding ceremony. And Jim Thorpe pulls off gold heist, reveals IOC. Plus, coming up, we investigate why puffin rearing men can't fly. Those are the headlines. No one needs sleep tonight. News bang. Telling it like it is, even if no one wants to hear it. 13. 1943. 1943, and the Red Army, later known as the Soviet Union's 1118, launched Operation Iskra, a daring plan to break the German stranglehold on Leningrad, now known as St. Petersburg Vodka. The siege had lasted for over two years and supplies were running low. One eyewitness, Boris Shotgun Petrovich, recalled, We ate everything. Cats, dogs, even our own boots. We were down to our socks by Christmas. The operation was a success, thanks to General Ivan No-Nonsense Stalinovich, who used a combination of tanks and tactics stolen from Sun Tzu's Art of War bargain bin. After months of fierce fighting, the Axis powers finally retreated in disarray back to their bunkers, where they remained until 19,450, when they emerged blinking into the light and surrendered. The lifting of the siege was met with relief by all except local undertakers who saw their businesses go under overnight. Today, Leningrad is known as St. Petersburg, but still bears the scars of that fateful time in its architecture and its people's faces. 1871. In 1871, a Prussian named Wilhelm I, who was so German he even had a number in his name, decided to unify the independent states of Germany. It was like a geographical game of Jenga. Take one block out and the whole thing collapses into a heap of sausages and lederhosen. Wilhelm, or Bill as he was known to his subjects, became the first German emperor since Charlemagne, who coincidentally also had a mathematical symbol in his name. Bill's reign lasted until 1888, when he abdicated due to an unfortunate incident with some sauerkraut and a goose-stepping competition. The German Empire lasted until the November Revolution in 1918, when it transitioned from monarchy to republic, which is like democracy, but with more cheese and less nudity. The title German Emperor continued until 1918, when Bill's great-great-grandson Willy Wonka too abdicated after eating too much chocolate cake at Versailles. 1983 In a bizarre twist of sporting injustice, the International Olympic Committee today stripped American athlete Jim Thorpe of his gold medals for playing semi-professional baseball before the 1912 Summer Olympics. Thorpe, who was also known as Chief Cheat a lot by his teammates, had won two golds in Stockholm, Sweden, home to the original IKEA Games. The IOC's decision came 30 years after Thorpe's death, leading many to question their timing. We were just tidying out the filing cabinet, said a spokesman, and thought, hang on a minute, this guy played some baseball for peanuts and crackerjacks beforehand. So we decided to strip him posthumously. Thorpe's family were presented with commemorative medals instead, which they promptly melted down for casino tokens. The great-grandson of Thorpe, Chief Running Sawfoot, said, it's an insult. My grandfather was a hero who could run like the wind and hit a ball like it owed him money. This is like taking candy from a baby or stealing from a grave joke. News bang. 
cutting through the clutter like a diamond through butter. And now, for a forecast that promises to be as exciting as a parliamentary debate, here's Shakanaka Giles with the weather report. Britain, tomorrow's weather, will have you donning your woolies and reaching for that trusty umbrella. The southeast will see showers like an overzealous water balloon fight, with temperatures dropping faster than a politician's promise. The Midlands will be blanketed in a thick layer of fog, making it as clear as a politician's motives. Expect some drizzle to add to the mystique of this ethereal scene. Over in the north, the winds will howl like a banshee on a bad hair day, so hold on to your hats and maybe even your doorsteps. And yes, there might be some snowflakes joining the party too. So, in summary, soggy water balloons, mysterious fog and howling winds. Stay warm and dry, folks. And that's all the weather. Thirteen. Nineteen forty-three. In a stunning turn of events from the annals of World War II, Operation Iskra, a Soviet military operation, unfolded in 1943. The objective? To break the Axis powers' relentless siege of Leningrad, now revered as St. Petersburg. This Red Army-led endeavor proved pivotal in the global conflict that claimed millions of lives and introduced aircraft and nuclear weaponry to warfare. As we delve deeper into this momentous operation, let us welcome our esteemed correspondent Brian Bastable to shed light on the intricacies of Operation Iskra. I'm here, on the ground, right in the middle of a war zone that makes the Somme look like a petting zoo. The air is thick with flying metal and an almost festive feeling as we await another assault from our invisible enemy. My cameraman stands ready to capture my every move and you can hear my words ringing out over artillery fire and exploding shells. There's something about this place that brings out the inner poet in me. I suppose it's because I know that each word could be my last. It reminds me of that old adage, in war, truth is the first casualty. But today is no ordinary day. It's January 17th, 2024, and we are here to commemorate Operation Iskra, a Soviet military operation during World War II, which aimed to break the German siege of Leningrad. It was a time when humanity was pushed to its limits and beyond. Millions died, cities were destroyed, and hope seemed lost. But even in such dark times, there were moments of heroism and sacrifice. Acts so brave they make you proud to be human. As I stand here now, surrounded by men who would give their lives for their comrades without hesitation or regret, I am reminded why we fight. Not just for ourselves, but for those who cannot fight for themselves. And though we may lose many battles along the way, victory will ultimately belong to those who refuse to give up hope or let fear dictate their actions. 
Brian Bastable reporting live from St. Petersburg, formerly known as Leningrad, where history continues to unfold before our very eyes. 1990. Today marks the anniversary of a scandalous tale from 1990 involving the then mayor of Washington, D.C., Marion Barry. In a sting operation, Barry was apprehended for possessing crack cocaine, a highly addictive substance known for its swift and intense high. Serving as mayor twice from 79 to 91 and again from 95 to 99, this incident left an indelible mark on his political career. And now, Ken Shit has been investigating the intricacies of this operation and the impact it had on Barry's life and career. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to talk about a time when the world was younger, the hair was bigger, and crack cocaine was king. Yes, it's 1990, and we're talking about Marion Barry, the former mayor of Washington, D.C., who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, or more accurately, his nose in a bag of crack. Now, let me tell you, folks, this ain't no joke. Here we have a man who served as mayor, not once, but twice. Yet he couldn't resist the allure of that white powder that turns your brain into mush. It's like he forgot he was supposed to be running a city and instead decided to get high on crack like some common street junkie. The sting operation that caught him red-handed is something out of a Hollywood movie. The cops set up a phony drug deal in one of those seedy motels where you can rent by the hour. And there he was, Marion Barry himself, walking right into their trap like a fool. They say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, if that's true, then Marion Barry must have been absolutely corrupted by his position as mayor because there ain't no excuse for getting busted with crack cocaine. This is Ken Shit reminding you that even those in positions of power are not immune to the lure of drugs. So next time you think you can get away with it just because you have influence or money or whatever else you think gives you an edge over society, think again. Because when it comes down to it, we are all equal under the law, even former mayors. 1871. Today marks the anniversary of a momentous event in the annals of history as the German Empire was formed in 1871. A unification of previously independent states led by Wilhelm I, this monumental shift began in 1866 and culminated in the proclamation of the German Empire Wilhelm served as King of Prussia and German Emperor until his demise in 1888. The German Empire persisted until the November Revolution in 1918 when it morphed from a monarchy into a republic. The title, German Emperor, was introduced in the 1871 Constitution and remained in use until Wilhelm II's abdication in 1918. To delve deeper into this historical milestone, we now turn to our reporter, Hardeman Pesto. I'm here in Berlin, Martin on the eve of a momentous occasion in German history. There is a feeling of great anticipation in the air as the various German states prepare to unite under one banner. And I understand the man who will lead this new German empire is none other than the King of Prussia himself, Wilhelm I? That's correct. Old Wilhelm I will become the new German emperor, or Kaiser. The people are very excited. There are parades and festivals across the land. Fascinating stuff. And when exactly will this unification become official? As soon as Wilhelm makes his big speech and proclamation tomorrow at the palace. His big speech tomorrow? And you'll be there to report on it live for us? Absolutely, I wouldn't miss it for the world. I'll be right there in the front row as Wilhelm proclaims the new German Empire. Front row at the palace. 
Excellent work, Pesto. We'll check back in with you tomorrow then. Yes, see you tomorrow. It's sure to be one for the history books as the German states unite at last. Indeed. One small issue, Pesto. Wilhelm I has been dead for 300 years. The German Empire was formed in 1871. What the hell are you doing there in 1824? Did I say 1824? Silly me. I meant 1871, of course. This is unbelievable. You don't even know what year you're supposed to be reporting from. How are we supposed to trust anything you say? Can you even see the Brandenburg Gate from where you're standing? The Brandenburg Gate? Well, I, uh, seem to have wandered a bit off track, actually. But I'll be in the right place at the right time tomorrow for Wilhelm's big speech. You can count on that. If we could count on you for anything, Pesto, it would be a minor miracle. Let's just wrap this nonsense up now before you accidentally report the outbreak of World War I 50 years early. Back to the studio. But thank you, Pesto. News bang. An embarrassment of riches, a poverty of lies. Here's Ryder Boff with a look back at two sports legends who broke barriers and left their mark on history. Listen closely as he takes us on a journey from the ice rink to the Olympic Games. Ah, the year is 1983, and what a year it was. American athlete Jim Thorpe, a man who could run faster than a squirrel on hot coals, had his Olympic medal stripped for playing semi-professional baseball before the 1912 Summer Olympics, a decision as baffling as my Aunt Maud's decision to marry her cat. But fear not. 30 years posthumously, the International Olympic Committee decided to stop sitting on their hands and presented commemorative medals to his family. Thorpe wasn't just a one-trick pony. He could play football, professional baseball and basketball with the same ease I have when I'm trying to open a childproof medicine bottle. Now let's rewind even further back in time to 1958. Willie O'Ree, known in some circles as Slapshot Willie, broke onto the ice hockey scene like a moose breaking into a maple syrup store. The first black Canadian player in the NHL skated for the Boston Bruins faster than gossip spreads at a church picnic. He smashed through that colour barrier with all the subtlety of an elephant in ballet shoes and later found himself rightly perched in the Hockey Hall of Fame come 2018. Personal anecdote time. I once tried my hand at ice hockey, ended up skating like Bambi on an oil slick and spent more time kissing the ice than actually playing. And speaking of kissing, it reminds me of my second divorce. Cold, expensive and everyone wondering why I kept getting up only to fall over again. So there we have it, folks. Two titans from yesteryear who remind us that sport isn't just about winning, it's about breaking barriers and occasionally making committees look sillier than a clown at an undertaker's convention. Until next time when we'll dive into another historical haystack looking for sporting needles. And now, let's welcome Polly Beep, who'll take us on a journey to Botany Bay and reveal the impact of the A1788's new guests on traffic. Stay tuned for some surprising encounters. Ah, the year is 1788. We're back to when road travel was more like a guided stroll through the outback. The real story today is all about the happenings at the A1788, otherwise known as Botany Bay. The HMS Supply, an armed tender of considerable stature, has just arrived with a gaggle of British colonists and convicts in tow. What does this mean for traffic on this glorious Wednesday? 
well, brace yourselves. If you're cruising along the A1788 right now, expect to see some uninvited guests waving from the shores. No offence to our friends from across the seas, but they might cause a bit of a stir. You might even catch sight of some good old rats and weevils jumping ship. In other news, our dear friends on the A1787 near Tahiti have encountered an unexpected delay. Apparently, Captain Cook decided to take a quick nap during his voyage, causing his ship to veer off course and bump into New Zealand instead of Australia. Poor guy probably needs more sleep than he lets on. Now let's shift our attention to our Londoners back home in England on the M2506 or B3402BIS. Traffic is thicker than pea soup due to some peculiar creatures causing havoc on the roads. Fret not. The British Royal Animal Control is on it and will be apprehending those pesky kangaroos shortly. Don't try and cuddle them, they bite. Lastly, I must remind you all that it's essential to keep your powdered wigs in check while driving down these historic roads. We wouldn't want any horseplay involving wigs and carriages. It just wouldn't do. Stay tuned for more updates as we continue our adventure through time with Polly Beep. 1977. Next, our resident science correspondent, Calamity Prenderville, regales us with the fascinating tale of Legionnaire's disease, how British ingenuity discovered the deadly bacterium and their equally ingenious solution to combat it. Welcome back to Newsbang, where we're celebrating the birth of Legionnaire's disease. Yes, you heard that right. Today, in 1977, the CDC announced that this mysterious illness was caused by a new bacterium they dubbed Legionella. And guess what? It was all thanks to British innovation. You see, it all started when a group of British soldiers were stationed in a sweltering American hotel. They fell ill with a strange pneumonia-like illness. The Yanks were stumped, but our plucky Brits knew just what to do. They sent samples back to the UK, and our top boffins got to work. Lo and behold, they discovered a brand new bacterium, and not just any bacterium, but one that causes pneumonia. It was like finding a needle in a haystack if the haystack was your lungs and the needle was a tiny bugger trying to kill you. The Legionella bacterium is a slippery little devil. It can lurk in water systems, cooling towers and even hot tubs. But fear not, dear viewer, our British ingenuity has found a way to combat this microscopic menace. Now, I know what you're thinking. Calamity! How can I protect myself from this deadly disease? Well, worry no more. Simply install a state-of-the-art British water filtration system in your home. These bad boys can filter out even the tiniest of bacteria, ensuring your water is as pure as a mountain spring. So, there you have it. Legionnaire's disease may sound like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it's all thanks to British innovation. So, next time you're feeling under the weather, just remember, it could be worse. You could have Legionnaire's disease. Stay tuned for more ridiculous reports on historical events brought to you by Newsbang and yours truly, Calamity Prenderville. Newsbang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. Here's Sandy O'Shaughnessy, your regal guide, 
to whisk you away on a journey through historical matrimonial bliss, Tudor style. Nice and easy. Ah, uh, and a very good evening to you all. Welcome back to your favorite radio show, where history comes alive with a sprinkle of humor and a dash of satire. It's Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, your royally appointed guide through the annals of time. So, settle in, pour yourself another cup of tea, and let's embark on this regal journey together. Ah. <laughs> now, cast your minds back to the year 1486. Ah, what a year it was. Elizabeth of York married King Henry VII and became Queen Consort of England, a union that followed Henry's victory at the Battle of Bosworth Field. And just like that, the House of Tudor was born. I wonder if they had any wedding favours, perhaps a commemorative herring or two. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of royal unions, in 474 AD, we find Leo II briefly ruling as the Byzantine Emperor. His grandfather Leo the Ryan died, leaving him as sole emperor for a brief moment before his own untimely demise. And just like that, his father, Zeno, became co-emperor. Talk about passing the crown from one generation to another. It's enough to make you wonder if J.R. Ah. <laughs> Ewing had any royal ancestors. I mean, think about it. Family feuds, power struggles. Uh, the man practically lived in a soap opera. Ah. <laughs> But let's not dwell too much on the past. After all, history is just one big jigsaw puzzle waiting to be solved. Take Maureen from Tipperary, for example. She writes in saying her pet tapir has started crowing like a rooster every morning. Is she trying to tell us something? Perhaps our tapir friend has been studying up on royal history and decided he wants his own crown. Who knows? The world is full of surprises. Ah. <laughs> And speaking of surprises, have you heard about Brenda from Sligo's letter? She found a wrap of heroin in her letterbox with no note attached. Now that's what I call an unexpected delivery. Maybe it's a sign from above, or perhaps it's just Brenda's neighbour with an odd sense of humour. Or maybe they're both fans of our show and thought we could use some material for our next segment. Huh? <laughs> After all these years on air, I still can't believe how many fascinating stories come my way every day. Whether they're about royalty or tapirs or mysterious packages, it just goes to show that life is full of twists and turns, and we wouldn't have it any other way. Ah. <laughs> so until we meet again in tales and tunes, keep those letters coming. Who knows what stories they might hold. And as always, see you later, alligator. In a while, crocodile. Until then, farewell. Today we take you back to 1951, where the United Nations Memorial Cemetery in Busan, South Korea, serves as the final resting place for 2,300 casualties of the Korean War. Established as the sole UN cemetery globally, it is a stark reminder of the price paid for peace. Busan, South Korea's second-largest city, stands as a beacon of economic, cultural and educational prowess in southeastern Korea. Meanwhile, the United Nations continues its mission to foster international cooperation from its headquarters in New York City. Now let's hear from our Smithsonian Moss on how this cemetery has become a symbol of unity and reconciliation between nations. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. 
Waho, culture vultures. It's your high priestess of pop, Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to dish out a slice of history with a side of sass. So strap in, because we're about to get schooled, and not the boring kind. The year is 1951, and while Marilyn Monroe is busy steaming up the silver screen, something far more sobering is going down in Busan, South Korea. We're talking about the United Nations Memorial Cemetery, darlings, the only UN cemetery in the world. It's like the VIP lounge of the afterlife for UN command casualties of the Korean War. Now picture this, 2,300 graves. That's like if Coachella was a cemetery and every festival goer was a fallen hero. And Busan? It's not just a resting place for the brave. It's South Korea's own slice of SoCal, bustling, vibrant, and the educational hub where the brains are as hot as the kimchi. But let's not forget the UN, the big boss of international relations, headquartered in the Big Apple. They're like the world's most exclusive club, and their HQ is where the global elite go to party. I mean, promote peace and security. So, what's the takeaway from our little history hop? It's a reminder, peeps, that while we're all busy swiping right and chasing clout, there's a spot in Busan that's holding it down for the real MVPs of yesteryear. It's a history lesson wrapped in a reality check, served with a side of Smithsonian sass. And there you have it, folks. A culture report that's as tight as your ex's new squeezes yoga pants. Keep it locked here for more deep dives and high fives. Smithsonian Moss, out. Newsbang, uncovering the dirty little secrets of power. Just time for a look at tomorrow's front pages. Uh, Zeppelins take first bite of British soil. That's the Times. The Guardian. American civil liberties united at union meeting. There's a large building there. The Independent. Ruar forced to gargle English snag. And that's exactly what the bingo caller says when he gives out the last remaining consonant. The Mirror. Black rat battle clears streets. And finally from us this evening, the Daily Express lead with goat hunting ban faces reversal. So now it's good night from us. If you've been just thinking about walking into Newsbang Studios and shouting at the top of your voice until someone pays attention to you, good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>